Right. Well, good morning, Christine and Bonnie. Thank you so much for joining me. Great. Great to be here. Yes. So uh, people who have been watching these videos will probably be familiar with Christine Seifen. We've done a number of uh, live streams together and other conversations with each other and with other people. And um, Christine is a former professor at Antioch University, a licensed mental health therapist and a good friend and has been really involved in this project and also in the CTA project, Critical Therapy Antidote. Christine is one of the two hosts of the Critical Therapy Antidote podcast with Yako Fonseil. And um, if you haven't seen that, I really encourage everybody to check that out because it's absolutely wonderful. And um, Bonnie though is, is joining us for the first time and I'm very delighted to be able to speak with you, Bonnie. And would you mind giving a little introduction for people who may not be familiar with your work and with you? Sure. I um, well, let's see. I most recent I recently wrote a book called Undoctrinate: uh, How Politicized Classrooms Are Harming Kids and Ruining Our Schools. Uh, I am the former director of K twelve Outreach at Fire, uh, which is a free speech organization, and I have worked in schools uh, with uh, as an English teacher, as a guidance counselor, and I taught in college psychology for a number of years. Uh, met Christine recently through Don't Divide Us, uh, which is an organization based out of the UK. Uh, and so I think I've been interested for a long time in both obviously education, but also in, in psychology and the psychological um, connections between what we're seeing in schools happening these days and how we might address it. Well, and, and the way that I came across um, your work was through reading the article that you and Christine collaborated on about deprogramming ideologically captured kids. And so this was, it was an article series, and I thought that it offered some really clear language and great concepts and good ideas to help people communicate with loved ones who are swept up in the the ideology we've, we've spent so much time unpacking and talking about. And I talk with parents frequently who are really concerned about their kids and how to, how to talk to them, how to communicate around their concerns for their kids, especially with regard to gender, because there's so much going on right now with kids sort of getting um, getting caught up in an idea that they have to change some things about themselves and that they, and parents are so concerned that their kids are going to make irreversible decisions hastily. And how do they, how do they stay connected and, and work to uh, bring their kids back from the thing that they've been swept up in. Okay. And, and so I really wanted to talk with the two of you about the, about the article series and about what advice you would have for parents who are finding themselves in this position. But first, how did you end up collaborating on this and what brought that project together for the two of you? I, I can actually start with this because um, Bonnie, I don't think knew at the time, but later on learned that her book, Undoctrinate, actually, I'm gonna give it a nice big plug here, I used as a reference guide to build out some presentations about why civil discourse in classrooms was important for child and adolescent development at various stages of their developmental life and the stages at which they're, they're at. So that book is chock full of resources and cited works, cited you know journals and, and articles and books um, where Bonnie put it together in such a beautiful way. So I had been a very big fan of Bonnie's before she even knew who I was. Uh, that became like my mini Bible, so to speak, because I was able to find resources there that were source material that I could go back and look at directly. So when I was asked to speak at this event called Don't Divide Us, which Carol Sherwood from Critical Therapy Antidote is a part of, that is kind of where we overlapped. So when I heard Bonnie was going to be a part of that um, conversation and, and um, talk that we had, I was extremely excited. It was because I've been such a big fan, um, unbeknownst to her until now. <laughs> so that's how I kind of knew who Bonnie was and, and really trusted the work she was doing already. Her, her reputation preceded her for me. 
Oh, and, and I'll add to that, that I, I met Christine on the call uh, where we were talking. What was the, the topic of that talk? Why, in, why childhood innocence matters. Destroying innocence and the sort of yes. all the dirty books in schools. Yes. And the, the reason we wanted to connect with critical therapy antidote for that is that we wanted to understand the psychology behind it. Like, why is innocence important? And for this article series, I reached back out to Christine after, you know, listening to her at that event, uh, because I knew that there was a psychological component. I'm trained as a guidance counselor, school counselor, not a psychologist. Uh, and I, I really wanted the, you know, her to bring that background, that intellectual um, school of thought and heft to it. Uh, basically, the article series grew out of, I think, questions that I had. And whenever I have questions, I tend to go to the literature to try to answer those questions uh, or, or just observations. And I think uh, in the in the article series, we talk about this idea that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, uh, which is a famous quote from someone I don't remember who at the moment, but I think I, that might be Stephen King. Is it? Those of you on who are listening to this, put in the chat. Yeah, um, let us know. In the comments. Who said <laughs> oh, that first? I'm, I'm thinking Mark Twain. I'm, I'm sure the internet <laughs> will probably say everyone said that first. Um, but what I, I just observed things that reminded me of my childhood growing up in the 1970s. I was not in a cult in the 1970s, but it was in the air. It was an era that had many cults happening. You couldn't go to the airport. Uh, without being, you know, sort of attacked by, I mean, if you ever watch the movie Airplane, there's this funny scene where, um, what, what's the main character in Airplane? Neil, Nel, Nelson, Nielsen has to fight his way through, you know, the pilot has to punch out all of the Moonies and the, the Hare Krishnas. The Hare Krishnas. The Hare Krishnas, yes. Yeah, and it, it was just, that's how it was at that time. And so there are many things going on. I think I was looking, a lot of people have looked at the theory and the ideology behind what could be called wokeness or gender ideology. But I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What I'm seeing also happening here is just cult-like tactics and cult-like behaviors in kids who are captured by this ideology. And so what I thought was, well, I know that there were lessons learned in the 70s from what was called then deprogramming. So let's take a look at what lessons were learned then because, you know, what's old is is here with us again. And, you know, if I want can offer hope to parents, it's that um, you can learn from the lessons of that era and apply some of those techniques today. So that is what I was trying to do with this article is to say, what did we learn about so-called deprogramming in the seventies that applies now? I, I, I mean, I'm seeing parents who are saying, I don't even recognize my kid anymore. Uh, they're like, a, they have, and this idea that you have a completely new identity uh, and that you should cast away your family of origin, just dis, um, uh, just disown. renounce them completely renounce your family that is very cult-like to me uh so that's why we i wanted to turn to the cult literature and i asked christine for help to do that well yeah and, and it is interesting how how prevalent that is right now and you're seeing these kids who I'm, i've spoken with parents whose kids have written them off because they voted wrong yeah. or because they're you know, associated with, uh, they, they, they call them racist and transphobic, but not because they necessarily are espousing racism or transphobia per se, but because they're not towing the line the way that the kid is, is wanting them to. And so it, it does seem like it's very extreme and there's a lot of separation and a lot of division going on within families. Mm -hmm. And um, how did you start to see this as a guidance counselor and somebody who was involved in the schools when did this start to become apparent to you and and how did you realize that that you were seeing something that was really disturbing well i think we've um you know through my prior work i've i've worked with a lot of the parents organizations that have uh, developed. When I started writing Undoctrinate, I was telling everyone I ran into, 
do you realize how bad it is in the schools? Uh, I did have a child I had to pull out of what I would consider to be a woke or a captured school. Uh, it was a horrible experience. And at that time, nobody would listen to me. Nobody believed me. So I just started documenting things, what I was seeing. I would talk to a lot of parents who would say, oh, yeah, I know it's true. But, 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 but I just want to get my kid through. But I don't want to make waves. Uh, but my kid only has two more years to graduate and so on and so forth. Uh, or yes, I'll give you my story, but I don't want you to use my name or I don't want you to name the school because I don't want it to bounce. There's a lot of fear, right? There's a lot of uh, fear of revenge being taken out on kids if they complain about what was going on in schools. Uh, since the book came out, the dam has broken and now everyone is, you know, I think you'd have to live under a rock not to think that they're uh, to think that there is no problem going on in K-12 schools. So I'm hearing about it from parents all over the country. Uh, and, you know, my just experience growing up in the 70s, I did, we did have this little commune in our little suburban street of sort of several families. I don't know what group they belong to, but it was weird. It wasn't a healthy situation. Uh, and so I was just tangentially exposed to that. And I guess I just have... Um, aware, you know, sort of a, a tangential cult awareness that, you know, I, I'm seeing reminders of what was around me growing up and, and how unhealthy that was, you know, kids sort of the whole Timothy Leary to, you know, turn on to drop out, turn, I, I don't know, he had a phrase that everyone, parents were very upset back then. So again, if I could offer some comfort to parents, this isn't entirely new. Mm -hmm. We've been down this road before. Uh, I, you know, I don't want you to dismiss obvious danger to your kids, but I also want to provide you with the perspective that this too shall pass. This is, does have elements of social contagion and enthusiasm, you know, it's, it's sort of a passion enthusiastic movement. Uh, so there are strategies for approaching kids who are in this state. Uh, yeah. Just like dealing with kids who talk, I think a lot of people will relate to this when you're dealing with someone who can only speak in slogans uh, and they sort of memorize these slogans and they bypass critical thought and how frustrating that can be. So uh, strategies for approaching someone in that state. And, I, and, I, I, oh, go ahead. Well, no, Tristine, I want to ask about the strategies, but go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that um, I think what's scary for me and from some of the people that I've worked with isn't so much about the movement and it's more about the medicalization of it. So the decision to put your kid on pu puberty blockers, the decision to medicalize this kind of radical I, I, movement for lack of a better word. And I think that's what makes it more scary than what we've seen in the past, at least for me, uh, because the, the physical implications, you know, they've had so many detransitioners, for example, that have come out and spoken about certain parts of their anatomy that when they wanted to transition back to the mm -hmm. sex they were born into, uh, those anatomy, you know, that anatomy no longer worked and won't going forward in mm -hmm. certain ways. And mm -hmm. so I think that's where the real big terror terror is, at least for me, uh, Absolutely. observing. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and yet to put that in perspective, you know, in Jonestown, how many hundreds of people drank poison and died? Uh, so yes. You know, let's not, that, that's worse. Uh, but the, yeah, the medicalization is terrible and there are irreversible things happening. And obviously when we're dealing with children, that's very, it's, it's just obviously shocking and mm -hmm. terrifying. Absolutely. Well, and parents are scared because when their child starts to talk this way or starts to declare this kind of identity and these plans for themselves and to take on um, medical procedures to transition using either hormones, drugs, or surgeries. They, there's a system that's set up to align with the child in that yeah. and against the parent. And so the, the stakes seem very high. It's not like other things that your kid could get caught up in where you can just wait for this phase to play out, or you can maybe, you know, if your child is, uh, is cutting or is engaged in an eating disorder, you can take them and see a qualified therapist that can help you give you tools to work with your kid. But in this instance, if you're concerned about your child getting swept up in say gender ideology, 
you can take them to a therapist who's going to align with your child against you and help your child on that path. And so it's this, this seems like it's, it's a new thing that parents are having to grapple with. And it's really scary for them to know what resources they can avail themselves of and how they can even talk to their child about their concerns. Yes. And this idea, this alignment against the parents, I mean, as a guidance counselor, rarely, occasionally, I would have to report a parent who you really thought was doing true harm to a child mm-hmm. or, or, you know, massive neglect. But this idea now that most parents are dangerous to kids and this, this I'm your mom now movement is very cult-like. Uh, the provision of a substitute family is one of the hallmarks of a cult. Mm-hmm. The demonization of outsiders uh, is again, one of the home, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. It's also a hallmark of sort of autistic thinking too, right? This uh, yeah, black, this white, black either white. Or, yes. um, or borderline type of thinking. So there's there's different layers of things possibly going on here. There's the theory and the ideology, uh, which is very jargon laden, which also is a cult like feature. But then you've got per- perhaps personality disorders that could be playing into this you know, or autism spectrum types of problems. So it's it's an extremely complicated problem. Again, though, I would say in the 70s, there was there were drugs. I mean, drugs were huge. LSD. I mean, there were kids dying of they, like that was part of what a lot of the the groups and communes were doing so it was also dangerous then uh the 80s you know eating disorders were very prevalent and i would say a lot of the young women we're seeing who are doing this now probably would have been uh engaged in eating disorder type behaviors sort of ocd anxiety disorder type behaviors in the 80s uh, but the difference is we didn't affirm anorexia back then, did we? We knew that it was a problem and we didn't say, yeah, you, the thinner you are, the, the better you look. That that didn't mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Uh, and isn't that what the big issue is with the profession of psychology are the clinical, the cl- clinicians that are out there doing the work is the affirmation mm-hmm. and the collusion with the child on this being reality and that the parent must act immediately. Uh, and, and so, you know, you've called a guidance counselor very rarely, Bonnie, right. On a parent that was doing almost never and always unwillingly. So, and the reason I ask that is because we know now that parents can be called, uh, from DCF they can be reported to the department of child and family services in, I mean, definitely in California, other States as well, if they do not affirm their child's pronoun uh, name, mm-hmm. you know, change, et cetera. So I think that's where the wheels are coming off in something that doesn't have any guardrails of containment anymore. I think that is where the fear. Well, and, and even as a guidance counselor, that was a guardrail because my attitude was always, I suspect something's going on. I don't know. You look into it. And so it was a separate organization, but with, when this, with this idea of a predetermined conclusion, Yes. You know, the parents are, you know, it's what happened to innocent until proven guilty, right? That's yes. a whole other thing going on in our culture. This idea that you're probably harming this child. Um, and I, and I want to point out for parents too, that if you really are concerned uh, in a more extreme move, you might consider making is moving to a location where the laws are on your side, because mm-hmm. that is a power that I think as long as your child is under 18, uh, you can relocate. And in yeah. some cases that you know, might be necessary. Well, I think you're bringing up a good point there. And I also, I really appreciate the perspective taking that you're, you're doing where you're offering a comparison to things that we've experienced culturally throughout history, throughout even recent, relatively recent history, these things have happened. Similar things have happened. And, um, and, you know, as they say, this, this too shall pass. So, we, but we are in a moment that is really critical for a lot of individuals and families and something that seems, well, it's not just conceptual, this idea of providing an alternative family. This is, we're seeing schools across the country I'm, I'm and in Canada as well that are actively aligning with uh, this idea that you don't tell parents, you don't disclose, you can, you can yeah. socially transition a child and I want to point out and not disclosed to the parents and, and that you must, that and you that- must. And, um, right now I work with Terra Firma teaching Alliance and, uh, we'll put it in the, in the notes, tfteach.org. And, uh, 
we work with teachers who are not okay with what's going on in the schools. And what bothers many of them the most is this idea that they must engage in compelled deceit where they are supposed to keep secrets from parents. And that is always a warning sign. When you have an adult and a child keeping a secret from the child's legal guardians, from their parents, big red honking warning sign there. There was a video I saw recently on Twitter of a Canadian teacher, or I think she was a trainee, a teacher trainee, a young woman who was in tears and just moved to tears and really, really sad and worried about the implications of a particular, uh, some code or law or legislation that was going through that was going to require teachers to yep. expose this stuff to the to parents. And she was saying, this oh. is so dangerous for these kids, it's so dangerous. And so I, you know, the, what, what she's saying is that it's so dangerous for teachers to share elements of a child's social behavior with the parent. And what, and I feel like that's, that's a, there's, the there's an interesting language. language turn going there. There's a, there's an interesting frame reframe of parents as inherently dangerous to their own children. And that Which seems very concerning. Histrionic to me. Right. And I think the proper response to that kind of overwrought language is no, you're exaggerating. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I just find that childish. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a different philosophy and mindset. You know, when I was working as an intern and I worked with, you know, kids that were very, uh, you know, had very low income, had a lot of pressures on them in many different areas of their lives. We had to call DCFS several times, you know, because there was, abuse, actual abuse in the house. Right. So, but the idea was always to strengthen the family bond and to the return, the child back to the parents and back to the caregiver or the family. Like that was always the approach that they took in a in, in the eyes of the law. So legally, and then also socially, psychosocially, it was to return the kid to the parents and to build the family unit. So then we're sitting here providing family therapy, um, uh, parent class, parenting classes to try to actually unite. So this whole idea of pulling apart versus uniting, it's a, well, we're going to take your kid or, you know, or, you know, you better follow this or, or else we're taking your kid. I personally know colleagues who have worked with people that have called DCFS and they've shown up at the door, uh, saying, Hey, you're, you're not affirming your child, et cetera. The, the point is, that shift in focus went from let's rebuild the family. Let's try to give parenting classes, give, give parents the support they need so we can raise these kids at home. No matter what the circumstance was, it's better. That's the, the idea. The way of thinking is that it's better than being foster care. Mm -hmm. Now mm -hmm. you're seeing them pull the family apart in this way that is damaging essentially and does the complete opposite so the the whole paradigm has shifted mm -hmm. in how we deal with this and how we deal with families who have these circumstances with their kids and i think that's also quite well cult-like too and also quite scary i mean when you start having secrecy i think that's part of you know maybe a feature too of, of cult-like ish um it's sort of a secret handshake thing where it's just us mm -hmm. you know and, and, and in what fantasy does a teacher have the capacity to take over for the child's parents i think that is just ir obviously irrational i i know of one case where a teacher thought a child was undergoing hot flashes in class because of the hormones that the child was taking and was you know you're not allowed to tell the parents well you know when you're a teacher you probably have a hundred and if you're a high school teacher you probably have a hundred 25 kids in a day that you see. If you're a guidance counselor in a large high school, you have over 500 kids that you see in a day. And if this child is receiving treatment behind the parent's back and the child is experiencing symptoms and you're not allowed to tell the parent, that is an enormous Grand Canyon sized gap for that child to fall through. Mm -hmm. And that's a recipe for danger and disaster right there, because these treatments are not without side effects. They're not without risks. Somebody has to be overseeing, you know, the medical care of this child. But what we're hearing in schools is they want to move towards a more whole school model where more medical care will be provided to the child behind the parents' backs. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sorry, they just, you just, 
you know, the, how many kids does the a parent have? Three, well, maybe yeah, five? Yeah. Not 500. You can't do it. You can't this do it. This is so you different because when I, you know, when I was a kid or when I was raising my kids, my girls who are now in their 20s, when they went through the public school system, you couldn't send them with an aspirin. I mean, you couldn't send them with an ibuprofen or they're right. even, even. I got into a lot of trouble one time because I forgot to declare my child's inhaler. She was asthmatic and she had it with her and we, she got into trouble. I got into trouble. She had medication on her. I was going to bring up the <laughs> asthma inhaler. It was a big deal. And, and, and the now, nurse's office, but when yeah. you have an asthma attack, it happens really quickly yeah. and it's yeah. the day off and it's locked. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. That's yep. too. Mm -hmm. Yep. So it's really interesting that we've, we've gotten to this and I, I have heard, and it's been very alarming over the last, oh, even since prior to COVID, they were moving towards medical clinics and school nurses being able to administer vaccines to children without the yes. parents' permission. They've got this mature minor doctrine, which allows uh, children, different juris jurisdictions declare different ages, but age 12 and up is typical for the child to be able to give consent without the parent's knowledge or permission for vaccination. And yes. this, this always concerned me quite a bit because these are not they're not inert substances. This is an active okay. medication. This is a medical treatment that could result in some kind of problem. And when you send the kid home and the parent has no idea that that's been done, they don't know what to watch for. And they don't mm -hmm. know what to, what might cause a, an, a, an adverse event. They don't know what to associate that with. And so they can't adequately treat it, but this is, so this is the same thing, but kind of taken to a whole nother level with teachers being able to basically diagnose and treat children and, and, and the with, social transition the way, is a treatment social transition is. is an intervention it's it's a treatment and by the way you can buy a kit online that is the mindfulness tools for practicing in your classroom um here buy this kit for two hundred dollars and you have what it takes now to to change your classroom from a regular classroom into a therapeutic classroom mm. i used to work in therapeutic schools too so i'm very familiar with that whole model and so, uh, yeah, so, so, so you have them holding the secret. You also have them being the therapist now to the clinician medically, they have this information. And then on the therapy side, they're being taught how to social and emotional learning. Yeah. The whole problem with that is that they're trying to teach therapists to, I mean, teachers sure. to be the therapists in the classroom, which okay, you have 35 kids or 30 kids in the class. There's no therapist that even has that many, barely in a week might you even see that many clients. I mean, would you say that's accurate, Leslie? We typically I couldn't even handle that. Yeah. And that's yeah. in a day. So they're trying to equip them. Yeah. And that's something you can Google online and get and download. There's nothing regulating it. There's nothing saying no. So you're you're, you're talking about both sides of this. Now, the physical part mm -hmm. of this medical, you know, kind of uh, takeover. And then you're talking about the psychological part too, because they got them both covered. Now mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. they're, they're working on both ends. Um, so you know, it's this weird combination of hubris and foolishness oh, um, and yes. the, you know, the Dunning Kruger, they don't know what they don't know. Like mm -hmm, I know enough mm -hmm. about group therapy to know, that you need informed consent, that kids can't give informed consent. You that can't right. guarantee confidentiality from the other kids and you're in a position to do real harm. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, maybe parents could watch for instances. I mean, there are legal cases now. Uh, you know, we talked with a lawyer recently at Alliance Defending Freedom and that's a treatment too. Unlicensed therapy, that's a treatment. And yes, there are repercussions from that. And yes. I wouldn't dare, I wouldn't dare because at, at least I think I know what I don't know and what I'm not qualified to do or mm -hmm. licensed to do. And I mean, schools have licenses, teachers have licenses. And if you're licensed to teach English, that is not a license to practice therapy. Yeah. And, and I think that really, that really sets the stage for, you know, you're describing what, what we're seeing a lot of what a lot of people's concerns really are. And how this is um, how this is being set up to disadvantage parents in terms of what's going on with their children and, and having an awareness and an ability to um, take measures to protect their children. And your first suggestion was if you're in a, a jurisdiction that is this unfavorable to parents' rights, you can relocate. So 
some families will have that option. Some will not just depending on their circumstances. Some people will be able to do that. Some won't. What, uh, what other steps can parents take if, if they're having these concerns, what, what would be your advice? I think the, um, and, and uh, first of all, we list several resources at the end of these articles that we want parents to use and turn to. Uh, I think, uh, we, the main recommendation, the most important thing to do is keep the lines of communication open. Yes. Uh, so that you can be an alternative source of information, reality testing for your child. And I know that can be so hard and the child is trying to shut down communication with you. So uh, I, I, I really like this quote by Winston Churchill, where he talks about a fanatic and he says a fanatic is someone who can't change their mind and won't change the subject. And I think mm. As parents or as anyone concerned trying to pull a, the kid away from this monomaniacal hyper focus on this, you need to change the subject. Mm. You know, cha and changing the environment doesn't have to mean changing states. Uh, it could be as simple as um, getting rid of all of the digital devices in your house. I think that would be a good first start. That changes the um, and the constant reinforcement that they're seeking out and, and undergoing, which is a treatment in itself. Um, you know, hey, summertime, hey, let's go for a bike, like anything else, just anything else. And they're going to keep trying to turn it back to this one thing, this one thing. It's like, you know what? We're going camping. Let's go out in the woods for two weeks and let's do a detox. Let's do a digital detox. That's my first thought. Christine, what do you think? Yeah, I think, no, I think that's important. The lines of communication. I mean, I think that, and this is sort of laid out a bit that there's a difference between, you know, you can support your child and love them unconditionally. It does not mean you have to support the way that they see themselves and their, you know, kind of gender dysphoria sort of thought process. So I think that's hard to grapple with sometimes. Well, how do I do that? It's, I love you unconditionally. I support you unconditionally. This is an area in which we do not agree. I mean, there's, and, and to tell a teenager, well, that's just wrong or what you're thinking is crazy or stupid invalidates their entire experience and isn't going to get you to any place where the lines of communication stay open. So I think the idea is to do some exploratory work as well. So distract, I think is excellent. Yeah. And I think exploring a little bit of their thought process and what got them to their conclusion and being able to say, well, you know, I don't quite agree with that. This is how I see it. This is what I, you know, believe what I know. And yeah, there might be tension and parents might feel the urge to just kind of, you know, just shake them out of it, but you're not going to be able to do that. You're only going to really be able to help them see that when they've started to trust you enough to have a dialogue. And then eventually they open their own eyes. So the decision ultimately comes from them. And that's what we want. Um, because then it doesn't feel like my parent, my, my parents saying, no, it feels like, well, I'm empowered to make a decision. And maybe now I have different opinions about this and maybe that's okay. There's also a modeling that you can do uh, of having a difference of opinion, a difference of see of how you see something and it being, you know, we're need, need, and them needing to respect that, you know, we're not talking about disrespecting your parents either, mm -hmm. but parents have to step up a bit in those roles. And I think some of the, what I've seen a lot of too, kind of this idea of positive parenting is sort of this lack of, you know, parents wanting to be a little bit more buddy, buddy, I don't know, friend, friends ish with their, their kids without the structure that makes families work, which is that you have kind of the authority figures at the top, which are the caretakers and parents, and then the children. And that kind of model works because they're the ones that are making decisions um, as adults. And they're the ones that are taking care of, you know, your well-being. but there's this, this movement to sort of, you know, reduce, you know, to kind of equalize in a sense, the parent and the child. So that they're actually becoming friends in a sense, or, or, or even invert it or even, yes, absolutely. And I think that that's a it completely inverted at 100%. And I think that's another kind of deeper issue where parents are going to have to, I heard a parent recently say, well, I'm just, I'm afraid that my kid's going to get mad at me. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. <laughs> that particular one, I said, you're not there to be their friend and you are not there to make them happy in that way that you're all, you know, you're going to, you're going to completely, um, you know, collude with everything that they're saying and doing. So that structure too, of parenting and how we've, I think failed at, uh, helping parents parent in mm -hmm. the way that's going to be the most effective. So 
Um, so a restoring of proper great. authority within yes. the family, a restoring yes. of, of, of yes. authority and, and not exceptionalizing the child to the point where it's everything is child led and, and the child has, and everyone gets options. first place and everyone's mm -hmm. getting a trophy and everyone, no one's learning how to deal with, you know, falling down or getting second place or not scoring at all. And the resilience that you build by just experiencing letdowns or things that you just you know, you, you can't have, there's a, there's not, everybody's going to be first place. Right. But this idea that no, everybody gets a, a trophy. And so those kinds of things are sort of modeling what I'm talking about here, where, um, they're so afraid the children are going to fall apart, not really acknowledging the res resilience that kids have that's innate and that they're actually supposed to be building on that as well. That means being disappointed, hearing the harsh truth, uh, with compassion, but hearing mm -hmm. the harsh truth and also needing limitations and needing limitations, boundaries, mm -hmm. containment, they seek to, <laughs> to have those kinds of things because there's so much going on for them internally. They don't know how to process all of this. Mm -hmm. So that's what parents need to be as hard as it might be to step in that role and not want your child mad at you. You know, it's not the role of a parent is not to please the child in that, in that way. It's to, it's to love them, support them and prepare them for uh, adulthood in their, their lives going forward. Mm -hmm. And Bonnie, I really like the phrase that you used about fanaticism. It was a fanatic is someone who can't change their mind and won't change the subject. That yeah, is it wasn't me. It was Churchill. <laughs> well, it's, it's a great phrase. I had not heard that before. And I really, it sums up what we're seeing so well. Yeah. And, uh, they, they, like thinking is very good at bypassing critical thought and mm -hmm. you need to create a space where the child can start to question a little bit. And from the research that we did for this article, you know, one of the points that the experts make is that there is no way to interact with these sort of extremist groups and not have a few negative experiences. And so you have to trust in that and that as your child is I mean, these kids are under intense pressure. We have to be sympathetic to that. And one of the ways they relieve that pressure is by, it's easy, it's easier to join in than to fight it in some cases. And they probably are not happy. A lot of kids, they, they might think that they're happy, but guaranteed that they are having negative experiences within this mentality. And so you you want to keep the door open. I, I don't think it's going to be so effective to confront the ideology directly. Again, I think it needs to be oblique, indirect, get them distracted, get them talking about other things, find time away from this where they can build a more solid sense of, oh, I can have a life outside of this that could be good as well. And then open that door to lead them away. I think if you try, if a person is very deeply ideologically captured, captured and you confront it directly, you might just drive them deeper into it the same way that if your teenage daughter has a rebel boyfriend, you know, and you try to break them up, then they, you know, she might run away with him and right. that kind of so well, yeah, think it's the you, human nature to be, yeah, to, to give resistance when we're pushed and, so. and don't feed it with attention because that's yes. what fuels it. Make it boring. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Boring. It, heard that. Yeah. Yes. Know, no. Yes. I would. And I was going to say that, uh, interestingly, the minute that you start to ask questions as well, uh, they can come to the conclusion that what they're talking about and what this whole kind of mentality is actually isn't rational. It's mm. so much more powerful for them to get to that place than it is for you to tell them as a parent, it's not rational. Mm -hmm. You can say, I disagree. That's fine. As I mentioned earlier, but to get them to talk enough, to be able to see where the irrationality lies and that requires some patience as well. I think it's a combination of all of these things. Mm -hmm. uh, Bonnie, your incredible suggestions as well about distracting and getting them to feel good about things they do outside of school, uh, maybe other hobbies and interests they have too, that can sort of pull them away from that. So I think we're talking about multiple kinds of ideas. Yeah. It of sounds like changing the environment, restoring and, and supporting positive authority, keeping communication Correct. open, Yes. Um, uh, reminding the child that you love them even when you disagree and that it's yes. okay to disagree and distracting and making the communication about something other than this, not coming right at the ideology and arguing it, but rather expanding the communication beyond this They're smart. Topic. They'll see holes through their own logic eventually if you give them space to do it. 
That's the big thing. Mm-hmm. They'll eventually get there if you give them the space to do it. You, to you have to remember that this ideology has cast you in the role of villain. So refuse to play that role. Exactly. Uh, I would I would be calm, don't panic, don't get angry, but be firm. I'm a big believer. Uh, and again, there are many suggestions in the articles and many resources parents can turn to that will have you know, deeper, more targeted suggestions in this cult-like realm. Uh, I'm a big believer in parent effectiveness training, and I would highly recommend mm-hmm. teach, uh, that parents who are concerned look into that. And what we're talking about here is a values conflict, which is one of the hardest things to resolve. Uh, and one of what I remember from parent effectiveness training is, you know, this idea that power and influence are inversely related, uh, that you really if you try to use force on a child to get them to do something, they're likely to dig their heels in even harder. And so would you if somebody tried to use power mm-hmm. on you. That's just human nature. Um, so the less you use power the more influence you're likely to have. Uh, That being said, you know, as a last resort, as a parent, there are times to use your power. And, um, but the warning in parent effectiveness training is when you choose to use power to make another person, and this goes for husband, you know, spouse, siblings, uh, you risk damaging the relationship uh, because you basically force, you know, you've taken away someone's free will. And maybe at some point you have to be okay with that to say, if I, if I need to rip you from the school and move you to another state because, and you're going to hate me, you know, I hate you. I wish you were dead. And maybe at a certain point you do have to be fine with that. Maybe you will have to harm the relationship to help your kid. Uh, But clearly you want to intervene before that. Uh, Again, I recommend parent effectiveness training, reading through the different levels of how to deal with conflicts with kids uh, and this would fall under values collision. What, uh, what resources values. can you offer for parent? If somebody is interested in doing more, re- uh, the that. book is called parent effectiveness training by Thomas Gordon. And it's a whole training system that you can go through as parenting classes. I used to do that a long time ago, and, uh, it's a really excellent communication model. So that's a resource that is not in the article that I would recommend values. I think I think that's, and I think it's important to kind of recognize, even if your kid hates you and hates you and hates you, there is a hidden, many times, a hidden relief that you're actually there rescuing them. It can be about, um, yes, right. In a bad situation. This, absolutely. With this, the pressure and the peers and this and the, that, this feeling deep that they may not show you on the surface, mm-hmm. but it does not mean that deep down, they may not be feeling relieved, loved. Thank God you got me out of that, et cetera. Those yeah. things you may never see or not see right away. It doesn't mean it's not there under underneath. That's just another way to sort of show that you are not making them carry the burden of all of this alone, that you can step up and make decisions to help protect them as well. So these relationships can be rebuilt. I I am a very firm believer of that. It takes time, but it happens. And I have seen it more times than I can count in other ways, not in this. And and going back to parent effectiveness training too, it's like when you have a conflict with another person, this is a form of a conflict. There are three choices. You can either change yourself, which is the easiest one. In this case, I don't think I could, you know, yeah. to say, I change yeah. myself and say, yeah, I totally am on board with this. I, I can't do that. No. Most people want to change the other person. Yep. Uh, that's the hardest one to do. And you risk damaging the relationship. And then the third one is to change the environment. So maybe yeah. different school, different peer group, different activities, yep. possibly different state. Uh, but another form of changing the environment is take away all the digital devices. I think that's a first step. I think that many parents should just do that anyway regardless. No, I, I think that's that. I, um, I don't often hear people say that as strongly as you're saying that. And I, I couldn't agree more. I try to have a relatively, my kids have a relatively screen-free childhood. And, um, I think that there's a lot of, a lot going on in the content and the process of digital addiction that is, uh, is harming our kids, but I don't know how much yeah, you the, want to get the, into that right it's now. It's a form of behavior modification, the reinforcement that it provides. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this intermittent reinforcement or whatever kids get from it. And I think it's very well thought out. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. try that. It's a good first step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, these are some really great practical suggestions that can help parents. What do you, what do you suggest for someone? I mean, some of these are 
the as you as you mentioned, the earlier you can intervene, the more effective that that you can be, and the less force you are are um, going to have to consider using. And what what about people who have a young adult child that they no longer have any? Uh, there's no there's no ability for the parent at that point to impose any environmental changes on the child. You can't force them mm-hmm. to do something that they don't want to do. And you're really concerned about what's going on with them. You're worried that they're taking steps that are um, really harmful. What, what would you suggest that a parent might try in that case? I think honesty, honest, honesty is the best policy. I, I mean, I think, look, you're an adult. I can't change this, but I am very concerned. And this is why I'm concerned. And these are the reasons I'll always love you, you know, unconditionally, but this is what concerns me about what you're about to do. You, you as an adult, I hope you do a little bit more research and maybe find some other, you know, research to learn a little bit more. I mean, you're not going to be able to confront them. Your, your boundaries are going to be again, based on what you personally believe, you know, and that you're not willing to kind of go against that to jump on board. I think that that part stays the same. I think the part that's very rough is that your kid could easily say, okay, well, I'm doing this anyway and screw you and goodbye. And that's it. And I mean, I think then this isn't quite the same, but I used to see this a lot with parents who um, have children that are in their twenties, early twenties, maybe they haven't quite launched yet. And they would have serious substance use disorders and there was a lot of enabling so that the child would be safe and enabling to, you know, keep the home, you know, as a place they can go to no matter what I'd rather have them drink or use here mm-hmm. where they're safe rather than not. Mm-hmm. And the thing that we always came back to was sort of this bottom lining it, the whole thing, the, the, the bottom line and the boundary, which was, you know, they have to kind of hit that bottom on their own. It doesn't mean you cannot help them before they get there if they want your help if they do not want your help, then there's nothing else you can do other than set boundaries for why that's not okay in your house. So if you kind of take that in parallel, which again, it's totally different, but similarly, um, I'm not going to, you know, help you pay for it. I'm not going to help you find, you know, the right doctor. I mean, you don't have to be involved in that. Right, right. And you can say that's where you as an adult now are, you know, make your decisions. I strongly recommend that you get multiple other opinions and viewpoints before you do this. Here are a few things I think about it or that some things I found and take it or leave it for what it is. You know, I, I'll support you and love you no matter what. I just don't agree with the decision. I mean, at the end of the day, you don't have that control, mm-hmm. um, but you can close the pocketbook, right? If, if, oh, gosh, if yeah. wanting financial, you know, financial, you know, help for that. So I think honestly, that's so smart. The honesty, uh, I I go back again to parent effectiveness training and the the answers for values conflicts are modeling. You can model what it looks like to lead a calm, sane, non-cult-like life, you know, and and hopefully they will learn from that. Uh, And then they recommend consultation, which is basically, you know, if like, first of all, what makes you think you have better views than this adult, other adult person? And if you have reasons, then let them know what those reasons are. Uh, but ultimately, you have choices and they have choices. But remember, you have choices too. Uh, because I think that this idea of inverting the child-parent structure and that they're going to tell you how it is, uh, as long as you have good reasons for why you think the way you do, then you should feel empowered to share those. And I know that in the cult literature that we share in the article, they recommend not dropping leaflets and pamphlets in a really annoying, condescending way, but it's like, sincerely, I'm concerned about these side effects. And I want to make sure you're aware of this so that you share, you know, valid information with them in an attempt to be truly helpful. And then, you know, the final step would be radical acceptance. If this is really how it's going to be, then you're going to have to find peace within yourself that you did everything that you can. Uh, but I would recommend that there are layers and levels of all different things you can try short of that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, change yourself, change the other person, change the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, change the environment is always the easiest one. While changing yourself is easy as changing the environment. Second, changing the other person is hard. Uh, but I think, again, they are, they're not going to have good experiences with these extremists type of views and organizations. And eventually most people will come to a more 
you know, midline position on things if, but you want to prevent drastic harm in the meantime. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so honesty, communication, information, and at the end of the day, acceptance. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's the serenity prayer, right? Change what exactly. you can. Yes. You know, grant me the serenity to change what I can to accept what I can't change and the wisdom to know the difference. Yes. Well, I think that, I think that those are some really excellent suggestions. And I, I like the Bonnie, the way you talk about modeling a calm, uh, non-radical demeanor and mm. also demonstrating that there's a lot more to life than yeah, just look how this. great life can be in the middle here it's mm -hmm. it's you know show them how great it is and give them a, a comparison that looks appealing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i didn't mean to interrupt <laughs> no i think that's, no, that's wonderful think that's, yeah that's that's mm -hmm. brilliant I, I absolutely love that yeah and distraction so distraction can be can go a very long way in treating a lot of mental health issues quite frankly even with suicidality that's not the topic today but distraction is one yeah. of the tactics they use on the suicide prevention hotlines so it really goes a far far long way mm -hmm. in helping somebody who might be um extremely uh in, in crisis or agitated yeah. or whatever the, the, you start to step outside of yourself that way a bit well there's sort of a thinking. tunnel vision to this and so yes. it's just it's like the the line that you used about fanaticism but you know just where the whole world is is fitting into this box yes and so to demonstrate that there's life outside of this and that distraction and that expansion of the awareness yes um is it seems like that's so important to address the rumination and the and the focus on that one topic yeah and i, I down to a sense of humor and i realize this isn't a funny topic but this kind of extreme ideological capture tends to lead to extreme humorlessness and seriousness and yes. I think that it can often be punctured with uh you know some humor some joy some lighthearted activities and just providing that contrast i think could be very effective it's like if you just give these kids some fun experiences that have nothing to do with this and then they can look at what it's like when they're with under the pressure, you know, the, the bell jar almost of, of this intensity and, and realize, you know, life is happier, different and away from this. Oh, I love that. I love that point. And I think that it's, it's so true. And when you say there's nothing really funny about this, there's not, but yet there is, it's almost like a Saturday Night Live sketch that's come <laughs> come true and it's like monty python but it's real you know and <laughs> there are so monty there are. python skits on this very topic if you yes, see yes, yes yeah yes. <laughs> yeah i mean just... there are a few that are out there too that are that are humor i don't know if you're familiar with jp sears he actually oh, has a youtube great. channel yeah great he's hilarious and yeah. it gives a little bit of levity to all of this that yeah. i think we all need including myself Mm -hmm. because I can tend to be too serious about all of this. Humor so, is healthy and it's a very, very much ego so. defense me mechanism. And these kids need to laugh. They need some yep. joy in their lives. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. they need some joy. Well, so thank you both so much for this conversation. I think it's really going to be helpful validating for parents to hear these suggestions and to hear just the reflections that you've offered. And, and I hope constructive in a way that you know, helps people to trust, trust their instincts and, and work with their child to continue having that open communication. And I want to try to think back to the resources that you've mentioned so that we can verbally mention them here again at the end. And then I, I'll also include them in the notes under this episode in YouTube and, and on the podcast app. Do you want to put a link to the article too? Oh um, yeah. Is it uh, hosted online somewhere where people can find yeah, it? Yeah. Bon let, let Bonnie send you, we okay. have it on CTA's website, but I think Bonnie okay. it's better if you, um, if they link to your website where it is. Okay. Um, and the resources are there. We put a ton there and then there's one you mentioned, Bonnie, if you want to, I, I can't, I can't yeah, remember myself what share. you did. The parent effectiveness. That's what parent it was. Effectiveness. Yeah. Parent training. effectiveness yeah. training is, that's I've always found extremely helpful. And, yes. uh, and we had talked before too, about a lot of the kids who are struggling with this also probably are, are, have spectrum issues. Mm -hmm. And I, I will send you again, that article about um, the relationship between gender problems and autism spectrum disorders, the, you okay. know, the correlation there. 
because uh, sometimes, you know, there are unmet needs that also could be addressed in other ways, like social skills deficits and things. And, you know, maybe it's manifesting is this gender stuff because they want to fit in. But if they fit in, then this other fixation might release its hold mm -hmm, mm -hmm. somewhat or hopefully completely. So there's the, the, the book about parent effectiveness that uh, you'll send me that article. We'll also yep. have linked your, your article, the series, and then your book, where can people find your book? Undoctrinate. Undoctrinate is um, available on Amazon, oh, Barnes okay. and Noble and so on. And it's not indoctrinate. It's un like, uh, let's undo the indoctrination because you'll, you'll get spell corrected. If you type in undoctrinate, it tries to, to fix it. So. Okay. Okay. Excellent. We'll link to that as well. And then CTA and the CTA podcast are fantastic. And before we close, are there any final thoughts that either of you want to express that we didn't maybe get into, or that seem like a good way to cap it off? You know, I, I, I'm just going to say, you know, I, I think parenting is probably the hardest job or is the hardest job in the world. I'm not a parent. But I will speak on behalf of the parents I've worked with and the work I've done um, in my career. And there's going to be times where I think um, you're not going to be able to break through in certain things, certain decisions and choices. And at the end of the day, you need to look at what your own limits are, I think, too, what you can and can't handle. And mm -hmm. um, there's some level of acceptance of at the end of the day, you know, they're going to make their choices once they're of age to do so, whether or not you support that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very hard reality. It's a harsh reality to face. And I think it's a very real reality. Um, so I just wanted to kind of normalize that a little bit and validate that a little bit, because uh, there's a lot of pain involved in watching mm -hmm. your child who is mm -hmm. out of your you know care at this point, still young, but not an, you know, not a, a, an adult watching them make some choices that um, you, you can see are so harmful and that they are heels dug in and there's nothing mm -hmm. much more that you're able to do other than to just love them for who they are. Um, so I guess that would be what I would end with is, you know, it's, this is tough. I think we, we, it's easy to, you know, walk, talk the talk, but to walk that walk is mm -hmm. uh, it's challenging and it's painful. So there are other people out there though. And, um, you know, strength in numbers, find people who think and feel the way you do like-minded parents. Even if you start a small group of like-minded parents, for example, you can support each other. Uh, you can give each other some tips and tools, but you can also support each other and what you're going through as well. Um, trying to ma manage uh, some of these bigger issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very well said as a parent of young adults. I, um, I know there are times when, when their choices are, are difficult for you and you just have to know that you, you laid the foundation that you laid and you have to trust them and relinquish because it's no longer your choice. Right. It's no longer anything you have control over. And it can also be hard. I think I, I as when you're parenting teenagers, I, I, there are so many times when you're talking to them and you just get that blank look or even the contemptuous eye roll. But then later on, often you'll see that they they really did connect with what you said. You'll hear something back yeah. that shows I, that they, yeah. Can I, can yeah. I share just like a five second story yeah. on this? Yeah. My nephew, okay. Um, you know, had a really hard time, struggled in school a lot. <clears throat> you know, grades, barely graduated high school, whatever. Now he's this computer scientist sort of genius and has gone off to college and, you know, has flourished in math and and science and computer science and built a drone and built an app and all of this so I was at my sister's one day and um he just out of the blue said I, I think we were talking about kind of what gets you motivated and he looked at my sister and and me and said you know what mom you have been telling me to take the bull by the horns since I was five years old and even though <laughs> I never did until now it stuck with me. So every time it gets hard, I think about taking mm -hmm. the bull by the horns and um, I was listening and that was just so absolutely moving for her. And, and for me to see that, that all the eye rolls, all of the, I don't care, all everything. It was always there though. And it's what motivated mm -hmm. him to push himself to the next step. And now he has 
these amazing opportunities. So I do think what you say sticks and I Mm -hmm. just personally saw it and am completely just blown away um that that's the voice in his head you know mm-hmm. is keep that's going great. i would i would build on that and say you know stay calm stand firm and be persistent and trust that they hear you yes excellent well thank you both so much for a great conversation and for sharing your morning with me today and um i i will uh, have those links for people if they want to pursue further reading and, and thank you for your wonderful article. I think it's really going to help a lot of people to get perspective and some real tools for connecting. Thank you so much, Leslie. Such a pleasure as always.